Welcome back, listeners, to Talking PFAS Podcast. This is Season 3. And yes, I know it's been an incredibly long break, but I needed a rest. And then, of course, there was all of the restrictions that have been and are still occurring because of COVID-19. I've got some great guests lined up for Season 3. I conducted some interviews in Queensland just before the lockdown in Australia, and I'll be bringing you those over the next three months. I plan on bringing you monthly episodes until the end of the year and the firefighter special that I had previously promised I will still be bringing you. It's just been put on hold due to the extended and severe fire season that we had in Australia over the Christmas and January period. Today's interview is with Professor Chris Higgins from the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at the Colorado School of Mines. This interview took place in Brisbane on the 3rd of March 2020. But it's not all about water exposure. We can also be exposed to these compounds through the fish we eat, through the milk we drink or the eggs we eat, in some cases through the lettuce we eat. So you can be exposed through a wide variety of of foods that you might consume, so it's not just the water, but it's also we work and live in environments where these coatings have been present, and we still don't quite understand how use of these compounds in consumer products necessarily translates to kind of exposure or your fast food wrapper. How does that get into you if it's in your fast food wrapper? But we do know that there's these associations which were pretty commonly found between eating things like fast food and elevated levels in your blood. So when you think about the complexity in terms of exposure, it's not just your drinking water. It's not just the food. It's the materials the food come in. And there may also be additional sources of exposure that we just haven't understood yet. I found this interview very informative and I know that you will too. So enjoy listening. See you at the end. Hi, Chris. Thank you for talking with me today for Talking PFAS podcast. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Can we start off by saying what you're doing in Australia? Sure. I'm here visiting with some colleagues here at Quays in Brisbane, where we have a project looking at the removal of PFAS from soil. So there's a project that is actually taking place just outside of Adelaide, but I'm part of the project and this is a project meeting here. Okay, and why come to Australia for this solution? Isn't this happening in America? Strangely enough, there's actually not that sort of research uh, looking at soil treatment technologies as of yet in the U.S. Most of the technologies that we're developing in the U.S. are really focused on water treatment. So this is a pioneering uh, collaboration with Australia? It is. It's a fairly new project, about a year and a half, maybe two years in. But the technology is something that I think has been tried maybe a few other places. But this is the first time that I was invited to participate in it. And so it's, it's kind of neat to be on the, on the ground with it. It's encouraging to see a pioneering effort coming out of Queensland. Yes, uh, it's very much encouraging. And I will say that the, the laboratory here with Jochen Mueller and a variety of other people is one of the world's best in terms of understanding how these chemicals behave, particularly as it relates to people and exposure. We've heard through our parliamentary inquiries in Australia, we won't get into that too much at all here today, but we have heard that Australia is behind on the science and Australia is behind the US. We've heard that from politicians and residents. What would be your opinion of that statement? I guess my opinion of that statement would be it's not quite accurate in some ways in that I think there are some things happening in the U.S. which are ahead of what's happening here, but there are some things here that are ahead. So, for example, in the U.S., as I mentioned, we focus on water treatment technologies, 
which is appropriate in light of the fact that we have a lot of people drinking contaminated drinking water or have had people drinking contaminated drinking water. The focus moving towards soils here is an important pivot, if you will, in that it's recognizing that the chemicals are coming from somewhere and eventually we're going to have to treat the soils. We haven't quite gotten there in the U.S., whereas here in in Australia and in Queensland, in this project in Adelaide, we've made that pivot essentially here. It's not quite a one is ahead of the other. There's different focal uh, efforts, if you will. Okay, but as far as I know, there's no projects that are to scale being used in Australia to treat the soil. I could be wrong. This project in Adelaide is a full-scale plant. It's a full-scale facility that's testing this idea of removing PFAS from soil via soil washing. Okay, this is new to me. So who's spearheading that in Adelaide? So Mike McLaughlin and Rai Kukana are the folks at the University of Adelaide and CSRO. The whole project is the actual plant, I think, was built by Ventia. So they're the head, if you will, in that context. But from a research perspective, Jochen Mueller here in Queensland is the project PI. Let's just talk about the soil washing briefly, because when you say soil washing, I don't understand. Say you've got a farm that's had PFAS water coming over a metre high every time it floods. Are we talking about technologies that could eventually wash a rural property clean? That's a great question. I think the one of the things with this project is a, is a question of how this works at scale, so which is why they they were doing the project at full scale. I believe the the throughput is on the order of 100 tons a day, so it's not super large, uh, but it's it's fairly large. And the idea is if you can figure out a way, if you have contaminated soil and you can get the PFAS off the soil, uh, if the, you can get the levels down in the soil low enough, then that soil could be used for other purposes. And you move the contamination from the soil to water, which you then have to treat, uh, but it does prevent the, the chemicals from moving from the soil into the groundwater, which is a lot more difficult to treat. Absolutely. And up until now, soil has been the most difficult challenge with PFAS, is that right? It remains the most difficult challenge, I think, for a variety of reasons, uh, which is why I'm so encouraged by this project. So how does it work, just simply? So I guess the idea is you dump a bunch of soil onto a, essentially a perforated conveyor belt, if you will, and you spray with water and you get the, uh, the chemicals to come off and you kind of disaggregate the soil and then the whole rest of the process is really kind of removing the particles from the soil from the water. So it's really making a big slurry, if you will, and then separating out the particles so you have just water at the end. It's just mind-blowing to me that you can just wash the soil. It's not quite like sticking the soil in a washing machine for sure, but it is a way to try and remove the chemicals, which apparently seems to work fairly well. Okay, so just like soil going up a conveyor belt, just plain water coming down... It is plain water. I th- they've built a facility, I believe, to recycle the water uh, so that they reuse it after they treat it, so they, it comes back through. I think there are some things that they add to encourage the particles to settle. So if you imagine you're making a big mud bath, you want to clarify that water uh, so that it's clear before it goes on to some sort of carbon or ion exchange treatment, which I think they're using both at this facility. So you have to sometimes add chemicals to the slurry to get the particles to come out. And then if they're recycling the water, they would have to be treating the water before it goes back into that recycle phase. Correct. That's the point of the carbon and the ion exchange resins is to, is to treat the, the chemicals and remove the chemicals from the water. So this hasn't really been tried anywhere else in the world that you know of? 
I think there might have been some projects in Europe, but um, this is the one that I think, again, to the best of my knowledge, has received the most detailed, intense study, and particularly where uh, academics have been called in to kind of try and answer some of the questions that sometimes the consultants aren't as, as interested in. Chris, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your professional bio? Sure. So I'm uh, from the U.S., and uh, my undergraduate degree is in chemistry, so I'm a chemist by initial training. But it turns out that a lot of environmental chemistry, which is what I started to get interested in in college, is actually done in civil and environmental engineering departments. So when I was looking at graduate school, I worked for as a consultant for a little while, uh, but then I was interested in graduate school, and the programs that I was most interested in were civil and environmental engineering departments. And so my graduate degrees are in civil and environmental engineering, uh, both as a master's and PhD at Stanford. And then I went and I did a postdoctoral fellowship at the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. So this is kind of why I have this interest in chemistry, engineering, and public health. I've kind of always had that from undergraduate through my postdoctoral work. Uh, and then in 2009, I started as a faculty member at the Colorado School of Mines, where I've been ever since. In a teaching position? It's a teaching and research. So we teach typically two to three courses a year for undergraduates or graduate students, uh, but then also do a lot of research. Now we'll go to talk about your PFAS experience. Sure. So I started in PFAS back before they were PFAS. Uh, At least that's not what we called them. Oh, the PFCs. Yes, this is when we use the term PFCs. And so Essentially, the fall of 2001 was when I started graduate school, or actually right before 9-11. I remember very distinctly starting graduate school, and my PhD advisor, who at the time was not quite my PhD advisor, you know, he'd been studying things like PCBs and DDT for quite some time in PAHs, and one of his colleagues at Stanford had said, have you thought about this group of compounds known as PFCs, or perfluorocarbons, is what we refer to them. As And uh, he didn't know anything about them, really, at the time. But I, for all intents and purposes, I was free labor for a year. And he asked me to look into it. And I said, ah, this is actually a pretty interesting problem. And so fall of 2001, I started writing proposals and started learning about them uh, and was very lucky in that a number of these proposals were funded such that we could do the work. So the rest of my dissertation, starting from that point on, was focusing on these chemicals and how they behave in the environment. When you started researching it, did you have plenty of information out there or were you really doing the um, foundational work? I like to think of it as fairly foundational work. Um, There wasn't that much information uh, on PFOS and PFOA at the time. There's a lot more now for uh, for what it's worth. Uh, There's actually a fair amount of information for those two compounds. But, you know, when I started, the laboratory at Stanford was one of the first environmental engineering departments to acquire an LC, a liquid chromatography mass spectrometer, which is what you need to measure these compounds. And that was actually one of the first grants we got was to acquire one of these systems so that we could do the measurements. So there wasn't a whole lot of information at the time and certainly not as much awareness of the problem. It's been very interesting to watch over the last almost 20 years now uh, the evolution of the interest and what has been a focal point of the scientific community and certainly much more growing public awareness in, the, in recent years. Yeah, I would agree. I started researching this in 2018 uh, and it's now 2020. And 
when I used to look at Twitter, there wasn't as many things would come up in the PFAS search hashtag, but now there's just hundreds of articles. You could basically spend your life researching PFAS, and I think you still probably wouldn't get to the end of it. It's very complicated, absolutely. It's like peeling an onion that never ends. Yeah, that's that's a, a fair assessment. I like to think of the complexity of the PFAS problem, if you will, in four dimensions. Okay, what are they? So I like to think of the issue of PFAS or the challenges of, of PFAS in, in four-dimensional space, if you will. And the first is the chemical compositional complexity. I know that's a mouthful. But essentially, when we're talking about PFAS, uh, it's short for poly and perfluoroalkyl substances. It's a wide variety of chemicals. What they share is they share this carbon-fluorine backbone. And so most of the time when we're talking about PFAS, we're talking about the perfluorinated compounds, the PFOS and PFOA, truly perfluorinated compounds. But there's a lot of polyfluorinated compounds out there. The polyfluorinated compounds are where we really start to see a lot more diversity in terms of the chemical structures. So, for example, perfluorinated compounds or substances that we mainly focus on are mainly negatively charged molecules in the environment, so they have a negative charge. But when you have polyfluorinated compounds, a large number of them are uh, not just negatively charged, but also positively charged, so they have a positive charge, completely different environmental behavior. And some of them are even a combination of positive and negative charge simultaneously, which is a very funny business when it comes to being a chemical. So when we talk about this complexity, you really, when you start adding in these polyfluorinated compounds, there's hundreds if not thousands of different chemicals out there that we might need to be uh, evaluating in terms of how they behave in the environment. The second dimension with respect to the complexity of these compounds is somewhat related to that first dimension in that those different structures lead to very different behaviors in the environment. So positively charged compounds, for example, really tend to strongly stick to soil uh, versus negatively charged compounds will migrate through that soil much more rapidly. And so that's the sort of thing that when you add that complex behavior because of the complex structures, it gets a little more complicated. When, you, when it's plus and minus, what does it do? That's what we're working on. Uh, in some cases, they seem to behave more like the positively charged compounds. In other cases, they behave more like the negatively charged compounds. So really, you have to understand the three-dimensional structure of the molecules to truly figure it all out. And we're not even talking about different soil types and how that affects what you're talking about here. That's correct. Uh, although, you can probably make some broad sweeping generalizations. Most soils are negatively charged. Uh, there's a few exceptions, but most soils are negatively charged, which is why negatively charged compounds tend to move through soils fairly quickly, which leads actually to one of the great mysteries of PFAS, which is that when we've looked out at sites where these compounds have been released, we know that they're in groundwater. We're, we've detected them in some cases, you know, kilometers down gradient from where they were originally released. And yet there's still a large mass of them sitting in these soils. Uh, and that's a little bit counterintuitive. If these compounds move so quickly, then why the heck are they still in the soil? You mean at the source, the site, where the most contaminated area was, like a firefighting pit? Correct. Now, to be clear, there are some sites where they've migrated off the soil and there's very little left. But there are many sites where there are still very high concentrations of these compounds in the soil. And that's 
doesn't make sense with respect to what we were just talking about. But it turns out that PFAS are complex in another behavioral dimension in that a lot of them are surfactants, which means that they are surface active, that's what the terminology means, and they're particularly active at the air-water interface. So what that means is if you have soap bubbles, essentially, uh, have surfactants, soap molecules, at that uh, air-water interface. And these compounds have such a high, some of these compounds have such a high affinity for the air-water interface that anywhere out there in the environment where you have an air-water interface, they will concentrate in that area. I heard a expert speak at the Heads of EPA conference in Australia on PFAS. I think it was in 2017. But this expert said that anything slippery is likely to have PFAS in it. It's just another name for a slippery soap. It's not in our dishwashing liquid, right, and our soap and shampoo, is it? As far as I am aware, they're not in things like your soap and shampoo. These chemicals are somewhat expensive to make. Uh, There's very specific technologies that you have to use to make a perfluorinated component of a molecule. So to the best of my knowledge, they have not been used in those sorts of consumer products. There might be some. Not widespread, you don't think? I don't think. There are other surfactants that are not fluorinated that are very common in dish soaps and that sort of thing. The vast majority of those materials have non-fluorinated surfactants. The reason I'm asking is because I interviewed another researcher here at Quays, Christy Gallen, and she's in episode 17, and we talked about PFAS in the waste stream coming through the wastewater treatment plants, and what she did find from her research was there was a constant uh, flow of PFAS coming from the domestic sources into the wastewater treatment plants, and that's why I was wondering where's it coming from Um, Just PFAS out of clothes, maybe? So you're getting towards the other aspect of this behavioral complexity, which I was going to touch on. So these compounds, again, like the air-water interface, but one of the other things that's really interesting is that, remember the distinction between the polyfluorinated versus the perfluorinated? The polyfluorinated substances, under the right conditions, can transform into the perfluorinated compounds. You're not making PFAS in the sense that they were all PFAS to begin with, but you're converting the form of the PFAS from the polyfluorinated to the perfluorinated substances. And the reason that's important in the the situation that you just described is that a lot of the consumer products, to the best of my knowledge, when they were made, they were mainly composed of the polyfluorinated compounds. So the coatings and that sort of thing were mainly these polyfluorinated compounds which then could come off your clothes and go into the waste stream or go into the landfill and then eventually degrade and release these perfluorinated compounds. So is per and poly as bad as each other? They are different. Perfluorinated compounds are generally considered the terminal products. In other words, once they become perfluorinated, they really don't go anywhere from there in terms of transformation. Are Um, they just the long chain ones? No, we're talking about short and long-chain perfluorinated compounds. Sometimes there's this discussion about we're not making PFAS anymore. That's, that's not true. Okay, go there. Uh, so, you know, the, there are manufacturers who are still make, making uh, polyfluorinated and perfluorinated compounds, but they tend to be the shorter-chain molecules, so they have shorter numbers of carbon-fluorine bonds. Generally speaking, there's not many folks, to the best of my knowledge, still making the long-chain compounds. Uh, That's part of the the voluntary phase-out in the U.S. 
of the eight carbon compounds. Yeah, I think there's three countries that I've mentioned in the podcast before from the ITRC fact sheets. You would know the ITRC. We have heard it mentioned in media and some fact sheets will say that PFAS are legacy contaminants. They're not used anymore. They were phased out. When we're talking about a phase out, we're only talking about a couple of PFAS, PFOS and PFOA. So most of the time we're talking, when you're talking about the legacy compounds, the legacy PFAS, you're talking about the C8 chemistries, which are PFOS and PFOA, PFOS and PFOA, but also they're polyfluorinated precursors. So the idea there is that it's not just the perfluorinated compounds themselves, but also anything that could form them uh, in the environment. Those were also discontinued. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not still out there in the environment, because there's plenty of them still out there. But those are the the legacy compounds, if you will. Uh, So PFAS, yes, there are some of them that are legacy contaminants, uh, but there are others that are, are, like I said, still being made. Okay. It's not correct to say that they're phased out. As a whole class of PFAS, no. It would be okay to say the long-chain PFAS have been generally phased out. So just to wrap up in terms of the, the behavioral complexity, it's this fact that there's a diversity of structures, there are uh, some unique behaviors, this surfactant air-water interface behavior, and the fact that we have this poly versus perfluorinated um, behavior going on. So compounds transforming from the polyfluorinated to the per is one of the reasons why I think that soils, for example, are a really important reservoir of PFAS is for, for those reasons, all three of those reasons, in that there's a lot of air-water interface in soils. Uh, these cationic polyfluorinated compounds can stick the soils better than the anionic uh, perfluorinated compounds. We, we know that the sewage treatment plants, the water treatment plants, there's a lot of talk just in the last year I've started to hear, especially coming out of the U.S. Scott Grieco mm-hmm. came out from the U.S., and he talked about there's a lot more interest in the wastewater treatment area because of the precursors and what's happening in the aeration ponds. They're almost like a perfect conditions to allow that transformation process from the precursors to those perfluorinated end PFAS. That, that's correct. As an example of that, one of the papers I was involved with as a graduate student was actually one of the first to look at this total mass uh, of various compounds coming in and going out of a treatment plant, a wastewater treatment plant. And in many cases, we saw more of these perfluorinated compounds coming out than going in, which was a strong indication that these polyfluorinated compounds, these polyfluorinated substances were really important in terms of the behavior of the other compounds. And that's what Christy Gallen noted in her research too, and it's been quoted numerous times. So one thing that does concern me about that as an exposure pathway is that most wastewater treatment plants, sewage treatment plants, at least in Australia, are not set up to filter PFAS out of their wastewater treatment plant. Is that the case in the US as well? It is. It's actually one of, I think, the biggest challenges for the wastewater treatment plants in the U.S. is figuring out, number one, where are these chemicals coming from? If they were elevated, relevant to the consumer products that are, you know, just coming in, because there are other things that can be discharged to wastewater treatment plants. For example, people can discharge foam in some cases, uh, the firefighting foams. So the understanding where their sources are, but then also figuring out ways to remove them, because 
a lot of these utilities are recognizing they can be serve as a source to the environment, but it's also not something that they're adding themselves. It's it's in what's coming in to their plants. That's right. And I've heard people from the waste sector say it's not fair that it's ending up in their lap and then they've got to deal with it. Yeah, so it's it's creating problems for the waste sector because they've got to deal with unknown sources, unknown quantities. Like, for instance, a landfill, they can't go out and test every truck that comes into their landfill to see if they've got PFAS in their load. I heard somebody from the waste sector say that. And even if they did, I would guess almost all test positive, with the exception of maybe a few types of, of waste. You know, I think that's something that Christy Gallon has, has been looking at. So, yeah, you're right. It is a a question for the waste industry. How do you deal with this? Um, and it's, it's a challenge. And financially, it's a huge challenge, right? Because a lot of them aren't set up. We've got small and medium and large wastewater treatment plants, landfills, and some of them are private. They're not set up to put these huge costs in. You know that from an engineering point of view, right? Yes, you're correct. And, and at the end of the day, we as citizens of Australia or of the U.S. are paying the price for having to, to treat that. So eventually that cost is, has to be passed on to the ratepayers. So it's a challenge for those industries for sure. So the main thing that they've said, the waste industry, is let's just stop it coming to us in the first place. Let's just get it out of consumer products, etc. Is that what you think is, should be a major focus? Because it seems to be a minor focus to me. As an environmental engineer or chemist who studies behavior in the environment, I, I try not to lay into policy discussions. Uh, it is a policy discussion, though, uh, as to whether or not we should be making these chemicals that really tend to never go away. Uh, you know, the name forever chemicals that is often used for the perfluorinated compounds is, is fairly true in that they're going to last in the environment for a long time to come. And to the extent that the wastewater or the landfill, they're not the ones who are electing to make and use these products, it's a fair question to ask why it's their problem. When you look at PFAS in the environment, Chris, where do you think the major focus needs to be? Does it still need to be on contaminated military sites? Is that still got to be the number one priority? I think there's 400 of them in the US, if I'm right. There's a very large number. I don't, I don't keep track of the exact number. Yeah, um, I don't know that they're all yeah. contaminated. I think I saw that in an article. There's about 400 military sites. In Australia, they're investigating 28. So I think one of the things that's important to keep in mind is that when we look at the use of firefighting foams or aqueous film-forming foam, AFFF, uh, this foam was intentionally used to fight fuel fires. So whenever there was something chemicals or fuels that would potentially catch fire, that is the intended use of the firefighting foam. So not structural fires. If your house caught on fire, they weren't supposed to use these chemicals. But that also means it wasn't just the military that used these foams, right? So one of the things why I think we tend to focus on the foam impacted sites is that even though actually a very small percentage of the mass of these chemicals produced was produced for foam usage. About 3%? 3% is the numbers I've heard. So even as a small fraction, the other 97% typically wasn't sprayed out to the environment. It was put into your home or in eventually into your landfill. So it's in, if you will, the reservoir is in our homes and landfills and wastewater, wherever the sludge goes and that sort of thing. And we may not have seen the tipping point of that yet. 
Correct. You know, I think there's a great question as to how long it's going to take for those chemicals to come out of the homes and the products. And, you know, some people keep their couches for decades, right? So uh, it could be a long, long time before we see that chemical signature kind of come out. But in the foam cases uh, or in the foam situations, it was a small fraction of the, the mass produced, but it was often sprayed directly out to the environment and directly onto soil. Uh, and it's not just the military bases uh, that use this. Now, the military bases tend to be more prepared to deal with an airplane crash or another sort of fire, and so they trained a lot. But there are lots of local fire stations. Uh, my local fire station where I live, when I went to talk to them, I took my children to Fire Safety Day, and I said, hey, do you have any firefighting foam? And they're like, yeah, right there. That's, uh, that's a Class B foam. And the fire chief pointed just in the hallway there and said, that's our, our foam that we sometimes use to put out car fires if they have them. Now, it was the new chemistry, the shorter chain chemistry, but it had uh, PFAS in it. He was aware of the differences between the old foam and the new foam. So the old foam being more the legacy PFAS versus the new foam being typically, at least reportedly based on the C6 chemistry. I know that you wanted to talk about short long chain. Let's just go there now, the C6, C8. When we talk about short chain, we're talking about C6 or below, correct? So according to the US EPA, short chain is C5 and below for the sulfonates. So in other words, perfluorohexane sulfonate, which is hex is six. So if it's got six carbons and a sulfonate, S, in the, in the name, if it has six or more, it's considered a long chain. If it's a perfluorocarboxylate, so PFHXA, which is a carboxylate chemical like PFOA, the carboxylates are C8 and above, are long chain. What do you think is the most important thing that people need to know between the differences between long chain and short chain uh, PFAS? So when you're thinking about this question of long chain versus short chain PFAS, there's some differences in how you define that. But the broad idea is that the longer chain PFAS, uh, particularly the longer chain perfluorinated acids, tend not to or tend to bioaccumulate more in people and in fish than the short chain compounds do. So what that means is that if I ingest the same amount of a C6 acid, PFHXA, versus the C8 acid, PFOA, the C6 acid will leave my body much more rapidly than the C8 acid will. But then I've also heard it said by some people that have studied health, um, a researcher in my podcast, that they still don't know whether those short chain ones are toxic because they're in the body for such a short amount of time that nobody's really monitoring that. It's a great question. I'm, I'm not a toxicologist, so I, I don't really focus on that. Yeah. Um, but I, I do know that the general consensus is the shorter chain compounds tend to leave the body more rapidly. So therefore, logically, you'd think your health effects, if there was any, would be less. That is an open question as far as I've been told. So the third dimension of complexity, in my view, is the exposure dimension. So most of the time we're focused on drinking water exposures because that's what's in the news, that's what people hear about, it's in my water, it's in my blood. That is entirely true. If it's in your water, it can get into your blood, uh, depending on the, the individual compound. But it's not all about water exposure. We can also be exposed to these compounds through the fish we eat, through the milk we drink or the eggs we eat, in some cases through the lettuce we eat. 
some of the compounds that accumulate in your fish don't accumulate in your lettuce, but the compounds that accumulate in your lettuce don't accumulate in your fish. So you can be exposed through a wide variety of foods that you might consume, so it's not just the water, but it's also we work and, and live in environments where these coatings have, have been present. And we still don't quite understand how use of these compounds in consumer products necessarily translates to kind of exposure or your, your fast food wrapper. How does that get into you if it's in your fast food wrapper? But we do know that there's this, these associations, which are pretty commonly found between eating things like fast food and elevated levels in your blood. So when you think about the complexity in terms of exposure, it's not just your drinking water. It's not just the food. It's the materials the food come in. And there may also be additional sources of exposure that we just haven't understood yet. I think the food area needs a lot more work. I've read documents that say that the general population is expected to be getting the majority of their PFAS exposure from food and water. Now, when it first started to be talked about, there was a lot of those diagrams of the products. This is where you're getting paints and everything else, the, the, the wheel with all the products. But food is a made, considered to be a major source for the general population. I think you're right. And particularly the group here at Quays, one of the reasons I'm most excited to be working with the folks here is they've done a lot of assessment of exposure and a lot of trying to figure out where we're being exposed. And we have observed declines in the levels in the blood in, in the general population, which implies the exposure has decreased because uh, that's the only way that really works is if the exposure decreased, then the levels will decline in, in, in the blood. That's got to be something other than drinking water because it's the general population. Uh, and so it's, it's very likely that uh, there are a lot of other significant exposure sources that we just are, are learning about. So what was the fourth dimension? So the fourth dimension is fairly short for me to talk about because it's something that I'm not an expert in, and that's the toxicology. As has been explained to me, and again, I'm primarily a chemist, these compounds and the way they interact with our bodies and, and various receptors in our bodies are very complex. There's not one mechanism that is responsible for all observed behaviors. So I think as far as I'm concerned, that's a fourth level of complexity, fourth dimension of complexity that's going to be a major challenge uh, for the toxicologists who are going to have to address this problem. Yeah, so just like we talked about, the behavior in soil can be, would you say, unpredictable? It is predictable if you understand the process that is responsible for the behavior. So we'd just say its complexity in soil is similar to the human body. Would that be a, a very long bow to draw? I think complexity in behavior in soil is actually probably simpler than what's going on in the human body, uh, just by the nature of all the various molecules we have floating around in our bodies. And then every person is different, and every person has their own comorbidities that might be going on in their bodies. Um, why did you want to do research on PFAS, Chris? I talked with my advisor about this back in 2001, and I started looking into this. And this was right after the, the phase-out of the uh, Scotchgard chemistry, the C8 Scotchgard chemistry, PFOS chemistry, by uh, 3M in 2001. They announced they were phasing it out. I started looking at this chemistry and realizing this is a group of compounds which don't appear to break down at all in the environment. And why I think they're particularly important is that they 
essentially break a long-standing paradigm of organic contaminants in the environment. And what I mean by that is that if we think about the, uh, at least from a U.S. perspective, the big issues we've dealt with, whether it's chlorinated solvents, TCE, uh, and those sorts of things, a civil action, the, um, the movie, it was about chemicals that move rapidly through the ground. Chemicals that move rapidly through the ground don't tend to bioaccumulate, largely, right? Versus chemicals that tend to bioaccumulate, things like PCBs or DDT cause problems for eagles, you know, bald eagles in the U.S. These are chemicals that don't move. So they stick around in a soil or in a sediment and don't really move. These chemicals are really persistent, and they move and they bioaccumulate. So they kind of have the worst aspects of some of the worst players in that context uh, and also happen to just never go away. So regardless of uh, an understanding of the toxicology, which I, I say that with the caveat that, of course, if these chemicals weren't have any effects, you know, we probably wouldn't be studying them. That's what I've wondered myself. Yeah. If they weren't a big deal, why are there so many people looking at this? It's a great question. Um, but, you know, I don't know what the right regulatory level is. That's, that's not my uh, cup of tea. But I do know that these chemicals are very persistent. They bioaccumulate and they're mobile. And just the mobility and bioaccumulation is, is a combination that we haven't seen before. For a lot of organic chemicals, we don't see that sort of behavior. Add to that the extreme persistence. I have certainly described this as what I think is a major challenge for my generation of environmental engineers. Uh, we're going to be dealing with this for a long time to come. So back in May, you, you're probably aware that back in May 2019, there was a PFAS expert symposium that was held in Virginia. And one of the things that was said in that paper that came from that talk was even if PFAS end up being less toxic than currently perceived, their solubility, mobility and persistence in the subsurface will yield contaminated footprints and plume volumes that dwarf those caused by more common contaminants, example petroleum, chlorinated solvents, etc. Would you agree with that statement? I completely agree with that statement. And there are plumes uh, in places like Minnesota that are 100 square miles. Of PFAS. Of PFAS. And when these compounds are so persistent, uh, it basically means once they get into the ground, unless someone intentionally pulls them out, they're going to be there for a long time to come. And, and the plumes are going to be giant. Now, the levels in those plumes might be very low eventually, uh, but that, again, is a question for toxicologists to answer as to whether that's relevant or not. Do you think we'll ever get to a point where the groundwater can be free from PFAS? I've heard specialists and experts in Australia saying we'll never be able to clean it all up. I, I think it's going to be a challenge to clean it all up. The levels, they're so pervasive that the levels uh, of concern are often quite low. Uh, and uh, so I think it's going to be a long time, if ever, before we're really able to get all these molecules, all these genies back in the bottle, if you will. You know, the, the thing I like to think about when we talk about just getting back for a moment to the, the firefighting foams, one of the reasons why just a little bit of it goes such a long way, people talk about grains of salt in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. You know, how many grains of salt is a part per trillion? I like to flip it around a little bit and think about 
if you had an Olympic-sized swimming pool that was full of this firefighting foam, what volume of water would that contaminate? And if you look at the historical foam that was used, one Olympic-sized swimming pool full of the historical uh, PFOS containing firefighting foam uh, would contaminate the entire U.S. water supply times seven. So in other words, seven U.S. water supplies at the 70 parts per trillion level, and that's just one swimming pool. If you think about some of the levels that are being considered by states such as California, which is an order of magnitude lower, that is 70 years of water supply for the entire U.S. So that one Olympic-sized swimming pool has enough PFAS in it to contaminate seven years worth of water for the entire U.S., and that's at the 70 nanograms per liter level. If you lower that number to something like what California or other states have proposed, you're not talking seven years, you're talking on the order of 70 years worth of water for the entire U.S. from one Olympic-sized swimming pool. And they use tons, hundreds and hundreds of tons of this stuff. There was a lot of it produced, certainly more than one swimming pool. And, and just on the water supply, I've seen reports about the U.S. that 16.5 million people could be drinking PFAS-impacted water. Are you familiar with that number? There's a lot of numbers being thrown out there. It really depends on what number uh, you're detecting in the water. And I have no doubt that tens of millions of people in the U.S. have PFAS in their water. It's just a question at what levels. That number was used in the PFAS expert symposium document too. Because what's happening now in America, as you would know, there are a lot of states that are setting their own regulatory guidelines. And when we say guidelines, they're still not enforceable. And some states, I believe, are to the point where they actually have started enforceable um, maximum contaminant levels is what we call. Do you know which states? I believe New Jersey might be the first. Uh, Michigan uh, and New Hampshire, there's a number of places that are, are setting them. It's a, it's a moving target, to be honest. In that PFOS Expert Symposium document, again, they talk about several states have taken actions to propose and implement their own PFAS remediation criteria. Uh, California, Minnesota, New Jersey, New York, Vermont, New Hampshire. Um, then you've got 20 states that have, have adopted a wait-and-see approach. And then you've got other states that follow what the US EPA have said, which is your 70 parts per trillion, Correct. Correct. Um, I'll just make a quick plug for ITRC, which I think you've talked about before. So ITRC is a group of uh, state, uh, federal, uh, and consulting partners, essentially. So various folks who work for the state government, federal government, consultants, academics, uh, and in the industry folks as well. And they have, uh, they've got a large team of folks who are focusing on this PFAS issue and have a very active website where they keep track of all these various state regulations. So if you're interested in learning more about this and you're listening to this podcast from the U.S., uh, definitely check out the ITRC documents. And they're, I believe, in the process of posting some videos to talk about the topics in detail. Yeah, their work is amazing, and it has informed a lot of my fact-checking with the podcast. I go to ITRC. I think that's the Interstate Technology Regulatory Council, correct? That sounds about right. I think we're pretty much done, even though we could talk about it forever. We didn't get to discuss your work, actually. How many PFAS papers have you been in, involved with writing? You've, there's such a plethora of them. How many do you think you've written or co-authored? 
You know, uh, at this point, I've I have lost track. Um, I think I'm on the order of 80 or so publications total. A little over half of which are, are PFAS related. So somewhere in the 40 to 50 papers related to PFAS. And are they all on similar themes or aspect of PFAS? They're generally trying to understand the the composition of these chemicals and the behavior. So mainly focused on those first two dimensions of complexity that I was talking about. I've started to do a little bit more work on the exposure question, uh, which is that third dimension. Uh, So that's what the vast majority of the work is about. Thank you very much, Chris, for fitting this discussion into your hectic schedule in Australia. Oh, by the way, what else have you done in Australia on PFAS? Anything else that we need to know about? Not really. Just had a lot of conversations with the folks here at Queensland and in a lot of uh, parallel projects and uh, parallel interests to what we're doing in the U.S. So there's, is there a very strong alliance between America and Australia with PFAS now? Do you think it's um, growing? It is growing. I think uh, folks on both sides are, are trying to make that bridge stronger. Uh, and I think it's a lot of important things that we can learn from each other. You know, I mentioned before the fact that Australia is focused on soils and, and there's a little bit more an effort on the biomonitoring that we don't necessarily have as much of in the U.S. Uh, and so I think there's a lot of great things that we can learn from each other. And I'm very encouraged by the efforts uh, on both sides to, to fund research that allows us to, to do that work that crosses the bridge and crosses the, the Pacific. Yeah, well, thank you again for fitting me into your very busy schedule here in Australia. And is there anything else that you would like to add about PFAS that you think we might have forgotten in our discussion today? The only thing I would add is that uh, when you start learning about this um, and just the acronym PFAS, poly and perfluoroalkyl substances, is a mouthful, I think that there's a hesitancy to uh, uh, realize that the chemistry is important and these are complex chemical classes and they behave in complex ways. And I wish, I wish the chemistry were simple. And I wish that this was as simple as one compound that had one behavior, you know, something like TCE, but it's not. And so if I had a message for your your listeners, if you will, is you're going to have to learn the chemistry if you really want to understand what's going on. And I'm a chemist, so I'm biased in that view. But this is the time to to recognize that chemistry is important and understanding the differences in some of these behaviors and and toxicology and all that sort of thing. It's actually important. So you can't gloss that over. Okay. So what do you think, how do you think the media in America and even Australia, how do you think the media are doing when they report on PFAS? What's your opinion of the media reporting on PFAS? Broadly speaking, I don't. I want to necessarily throw uh, all reporters on in the same same bin. I will say that those that report about PFAS as being this monolithic group of compounds that all have the same toxicity and behavior, that's just not right. Uh, that's not this, that case. And so that's what I'm getting at. Is that you know we have to recognize PFAS is a broad suite of compounds with very complex behaviors, and to lump them all in in terms of how they behave and their toxicity uh, is just not quite right. We can talk about the things that link them, which is the fact that they all contain this perfluoroalkyl component, which leads to persistence. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, there's such a complex behavior and, and that we really have to think about it beyond uh, this monolithic group of compounds. 
So we really should be using the word some. Some PFASs are being phased out. Some PFASs are toxic. Is that what we should be saying? Yes. And if you've listened carefully, I've tried to do that myself. And it's it's certainly important to keep in mind that the behaviors of a short-chain compound versus a long-chain compound can be very different. And so we have to, yeah, we have to caveat our language a little bit more. And there's one more question now that you talk about them being very different. Do you think that PFAS should be regulated as a class? There is a lot of controversy over this topic because some of these uses are essential with um, electroplating, as far as I understand, as a mist suppressant. I think there are starting to be alternatives for mist suppressant, but as I understand PFOS is still used as a mis-suppressant for the hexavalent chromium, which we all know is cancer-causing. So do you think they need to be regulated as a class, a whole class or subclasses? It's, it's a great question. I think when you start thinking about regulating them as a class, you have to embrace this complexity. And if you're not embracing it and you're lumping them all in terms of their behavior and toxicity all the same, I think that's not appropriate. What I was going to respond to was your comment about uh, essential uses and when we need to be using these compounds versus not. And there was a great paper put out recently on essential uses, and I encourage everyone to take a look at it and read it because it talks about maybe there are some situations where you can't find a replacement chemistry and and these compounds would be appropriate. But there's probably a lot of other uh, applications where we don't necessarily need the chemistry. And again, it gets back to the question of whether or not it makes sense to make a chemical that never goes away. I'll put a link to that article in the show notes, listeners. And um, do you advocate for them being regulated as a class or or you just think it's too early to make that decision? I generally uh, focus on the science. I try not to advocate for any particular policy per se, but I, I want people to recognize that the behavior is important. And that is something that absolutely has to be taken into account when you look at uh, this broad group of compounds. Okay, thank you very much for talking with me today, Chris. It's been a great chat, and I'm sure that we haven't talked about everything that we possibly could about PFAS, but thank you for your insight. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please download and share so more people can hear this. Next episode, I'll be bringing you a conversation I had with Lisa Marie Toms from the Queensland University of Technology in Brisbane. Lisa has been involved in the Human Biomonitoring Program in Australia, which monitors a range of contaminants in the blood of the general population, including PFAS. The strength of our work on PFAS is our human biomonitoring program and the fact that we have consistently been collecting these samples, which has enabled us to look back in time to a time before there was awareness, community or government awareness of PFAS. The first paper was published in 2006 and that was actually the work of Anna Carmen, who's from Sweden, but she used our samples and that was the first detection of PFAS in Australian samples that we were aware of at that time. Thanks again for listening and don't forget you can follow Talking PFAS on Twitter. I tweet nationally and globally about PFAS. So the Twitter handle is Talking PFAS and you can also email me at talkingpfas at gmail.com. And remember, all information in today's episode is copyright. Please share, but contact me for reuse permissions. Thank you very much. See you next time.